0: if you'd like to watch our live stream services or learn more about our congregation, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. from the storm in the shelter of your shadow. Yom Kippur used to be a very bloody affair. Imagine the smoke and the smell, the entrails on the temple altar as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, a place so sacred he only stepped inside once a year on Yom Kippur and then sprinkled the blood from the slaughtered lambs and bulls and goats onto the altar to atone for our sins. It was such a dramatic ritual, they tied a rope around the high priest's ankle in case he fainted, or worse. And he couldn't walk out of there on his own two feet. Our Yom Kippur looks a little different today. Thank God. I'll be honest, I'm not sure I would have signed up for that. But when the Romans torched our temple in Jerusalem and the Holy of Holies was destroyed, it was earth-shattering for our ancestors. Their Judaism, their world was gone forever. They sat in ashes and sackcloth. They cried and mourned. And then the finger-pointing started. True, it was the Romans who sacked our temple, but the rabbis of the first century put the blame squarely on us. Tractate Yoma, which is an entire section of the Talmud on Yom Kippur, describes the horrible infighting at the time between the two major political parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who distrusted and hated each other so much they could barely speak to one another. When one side gained power, the other refused to recognize its authority. Extremist groups... Flourished. Civility was dead. Sound familiar? After the dust cleared, the rabbis took stock and attributed the fall of the temple to Sinat Chinam. Baseless hatred. Which they describe in this curious story from the Talmud. A wealthy man of the first century had a friend named Kamsa and an enemy named Bar Kamsa. Apparently, in the first century, there weren't a lot of names to go around. He planned a dinner party and asked his servant, go get me Kamsa. But the servant accidentally brought over Bar Kamsa. Upon seeing his loathsome enemy at the party, the host accosted him. What are you doing here? Get out. Bar Kamsa replied, you invited me. It might have been a mistake, but now that I'm here, please let me stay. The host refused. Even after Bar Kamsa offered to pay for his own dinner, offered to pay for half the dinners, offered to pay for the entire party, he was still kicked out. It sounds like an ugly encounter between two people, but it was more than that. Bar humiliation played out in front of a room full of guests, including rabbis, who did nothing to intervene. Could things have been different if even one of them had stepped up? I think the rabbis tell us this strange story to teach that you never know when you're Entire future might turn on a single action or inaction. Sinat hinam, baseless hatred, is not just about conflict between political parties or religious groups. It's personal. Each one of us is responsible. The destruction of the temple was in 70 CE, almost 2,000 years ago. But it feels like we're in a similar moment. Just this week, I experienced firsthand the incivility within our own Jewish community. After the Jerusalem Post included me on a list of 50 influential Jews, their Facebook page erupted with comments like, she's a fraud. She's a non-Jew who leads people away from Judaism. Judaism in America is doomed. This woman is less Jewish than pork pie. Wow, how convenient. This lady falls into a job where she can have Chinese food every night. There were over a thousand comments. It was ironic and painful to work on a sermon about how Sinat Hinam once destroyed our community while reading this outpouring of hate posted by hundreds of Jews who wrote them during the days of awe. The sages warn us from the grave, Sinat Hinam will not just divide us, but destroy us, destroy our society, our democracy, our world. Now, the fall of the temple could have spelled the end of Yom Kippur or even the end of Judaism altogether. Until then, we had only ever atoned or communicated with God through sacrifices. But the rabbis of the first century radically re-envisioned Judaism replacing offerings on the altar with prayers of the heart. They reimagined what Yom Kippur could be. There's a well-known story from the Midrash where Yohanan ben Zakkai, the patriarch of rabbinic Judaism, was walking through the rubble of the destroyed temple with his student, Rabbi Yehoshua. Woe is us, Yehoshua cried out. The altar where we atone for our sins is in ruins. Yohanan comforts him. Don't grieve, my son. God has given us another path to atonement. Rather than animal sacrifices, through gemilud chasadim, acts of loving kindness. And then, because the rabbis like to have a proof text, Yohanan goes on to quote the prophet Hosea who says, for God desires chesed, kindness, not sacrifice. What a radical claim by Rabbi Yohanan and the rabbis of the time that animal sacrifices could be replaced by acts of loving kindness. No longer would a high priest mediate our atonement through burnt offerings. Now, every Jew would be responsible directly to God for absolving their own sins through acts of gimilut chasadim. The rabbis understood. A world destroyed by senseless hate could only be rebuilt by acts of love. And because your rabbi also loves a proof text, I will offer these words of Psalm 89. Olam chesed Yibane. the world is built on kindness. Now, the psalmist could have said, the world is built on knowledge, or how about justice? The world is built on kindness? Really? What do you imagine when you hear that phrase? A teddy bear hugging a globe? So often, when we think of kindness, we think of it as the soft, fluffy stuff of inspirational posters. Kindness is free, sprinkle it everywhere. But our ancient ancestors understood that building the world with kindness was no hallmark card. They knew that performing acts of gimilut hasadim was actually a heavy lift, especially in a time of polarization trauma, and unrest. Just think of the host of Bar Kamsa. Kindness requires us to give something up. Our comfort, our convenience, our insularity, our certainty. Do you know the difference between tzedakah, tzedakah and gimilut Hasadim? Tzedakah is a gift of resources. Whereas gimilut chasadim are gifts of oneself, giving of one's person. Now, that's a lot to ask, but that's exactly the point. True kindnesses are sacrifices, but they have the power to build a bridge, lift someone from despair, and heal a wound. Gimilut Hasadim became the rabbinic blueprint for rebuilding a world that had been demolished by hate. Our ancestors took kindness very seriously, and so should we. When our founding patriarch, Abraham, in his old age, sends his servant Eliezer to find a wife for his son Isaac, Eliezer panics. How will I find the one? But soon after, Rebecca appears at the well. She not only offers Eliezer a drink, but draws up gallons of water for his ten camels as well. You want a sign from God that someone is the one? Find the person who is exceptionally kind. And yet, why is it that when someone describes a potential date as really nice, We think of that as a death knell. This calls to mind a famous quote from Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel that has been ringing in my ears since I turned 50 this year. When I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I'm old, I admire kind people. When we're young, it's easier to feel invincible. Acts of kindness can seem too earnest, even unnecessary. We don't fully appreciate kindness until we've been broken open, experienced loss, felt truly lonely, been ill, or injured by a spouse, betrayed by a friend, undermined by a colleague. You don't fully appreciate a kindness until you've been the mom in the airport, alone, with a crying infant and a toddler and a diaper bag and a double stroller trying to get through the security line. In a time of vulnerability, an act of kindness can mean everything. It can renew your faith in humanity. It can be transformative. So why don't we do more acts of loving kindness for others? If you're guessing that it's because of time, I'm too busy. It's inconvenient. You would be right. But it turns out that that is only the second most common reason. According to the recent University of Sussex kindness study, which surveyed over 60,000 people from 144 countries, The most common response, by far, for why people don't perform acts of loving kindness was the fear of misinterpretation. We are afraid that our act of kindness might be taken the wrong way. Someone might be insulted by our offer of help. Or they could ascribe ulterior motives to our random gift or kind act. I hear it all the time. Congregants ask, is it strange to show up to my work colleague, Shiva, if we're not that close? Should I reach out to my friend who lost his job, or will that embarrass him? My son recently asked, is it weird to offer our doorman a cup of coffee when I go out to get one myself? Go to the Shiva. Make the call. Get the cup of coffee. Don't overthink it. The Sussex study shows that 99% of recipients of kindnesses not only appreciate it, but they're changed by it. Remember, acts of loving kindness are a replacement for sacrifices. We might endure some awkwardness or inconvenience, even rejection, but that's the sacrifice. Judaism sets an expectation of Gimilut chasadim, in which we are obligated to do acts of love and kindness, not just on Yom Kippur, but every day. And not just random acts of kindness, but intentional ones. Judaism has organized itself so that Gimilut chasadim becomes part of a regular spiritual practice, part of the fabric of a community. For example, traditionally... We don't invite someone to a bris. It's simply announced. And it's a given that the community will just show up. Jewish law requires a minyan, 10 people, to say Kaddish when a loved one dies. Mourners are not supposed to ask people to their house for shiva. Instead, the community is obligated to come to fulfill a mitzvah. In a society that values Privacy and individual autonomy, feeling obligated to show up and do acts of kindness, or receiving help or comfort from people we barely know, feels countercultural. But for Jews, it's an imperative. And I'm always moved when our central synagogue community lives up to that call, like we did this past fall. Aaron and Ashley had enrolled in our Center for Exploring Judaism, a program filled mostly with interfaith couples where one partner is considering conversion. Although in this case, both of them were not Jewish and exploring together. Just two months into the online class, Aaron was diagnosed with a brain tumor. The class took on new meaning as Aaron was driven to become a Jew before it was too late. His classmates helped him, reading him the materials out loud every week when he could no longer focus on them himself. But the group did so much more. Ashley told me, I have never seen people jump in and give so freely with such force. I never expected it, nor felt deserving of it. But all of a sudden, I had 40 people and their families who have only known us through a Zoom box, sending Shabbat dinner and challah every week, bringing a full Seder meal to our hospital room for our first Passover, offering to babysit our four-year-old, Jack, coming and organizing my whole house. A classmate who's a home health aide actually moved in for months. One week, when Aaron and Ashley missed class, their teacher, Rabbi Lisa Rubin, apologized to the group. With the focus on Aaron's care, they were way behind in the syllabus. A non Jewish student responded If this is the only thing I ever learn about Judaism, it's enough. Aaron died this past July. May his memory be a blessing. Ashley shared, I am only still standing, still radiating love, because you filled me with yours. Olam Chesed Yibaneh, the world is built on kindness. Now, perhaps you're thinking, in this circumstance, I would have done the same. Aaron's grave prognosis galvanized an urgency for kindness. But Aaron isn't Aaron's story an acute, condensed snapshot of the human condition? None of us truly knows the inner battles that anyone is fighting the burdens that each one of us carries, or how many days we have on this earth. And so, choose kindness. Here we are on another Yom Kippur, one that would have been unrecognizable to our ancestors, but was set into motion by them. As we sit here in services and take stock of how we've hurt others or transgressed in the last year, ask yourself, did I contribute to the meanness in our world? Was I a bystander to Sinat chinam? Who did I fail in their moment of crisis? If you need to atone, and who amongst us does not, Step into that holy of holies and imagine making a sacrifice that is worthy of your atonement. You'll need to keep open a piece of yourself that you normally keep closed for these acts of loving kindness require something of us. We no longer have a high priest. We are now a kingdom of priests. All of us. That means each one of you is responsible. And the state of our world depends on you. Our tradition expects a daily sacrifice. Could you commit in the new year to do one intentional act of gimilut chasadim each day? Accept the inconvenience. Brave the discomfort. Take the risk. And know your acts of loving-kindness have the power to rebuild someone's world, including your very own.